Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 1 of our March-April 2020 issue. You will hear transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Tardive dyskinesia, or TD, is a potentially debilitating movement disorder associated with prolonged exposure to dopamine receptor-blocking agents such as antipsychotic medications. Although two novel vesicular monamine transporter 2 or VMAT2 inhibitors have been approved as treatments for TD, many questions regarding the identification and management of the disorder remain. Published guidelines for management of TD are outdated, and clinicians may be unsure of how to diagnose and manage it. To address this gap, a consensus study sponsored by Neurocrine Biosciences was conducted to determine current agreement among experts on best practices for screening, diagnosing, and treating TD. The consensus process involved a nominal group process followed by Delphi surveys. Consensus was reached in the following areas. Brief screening for TD should be performed as part of the mental status examination at every clinical encounter in patients taking antipsychotics. Even mild movements in one body area may represent possible TD. Management requires an overall evaluation of treatment, including reassessment of antipsychotics and anticholinergics as well as consideration of VMAT2 inhibitors, and informed discussions with patients and or caregivers are essential. These guidelines could help clinicians develop confidence in monitoring antipsychotic therapy, as well as knowing what to do if TD is suspected. Research results do not always apply to groups that were excluded or underrepresented in clinical trials. Assuming these findings do apply to them could lead to harm. This problem is well documented for women, children, and racial and ethnic minorities, yet it is also a significant concern for patients with mental health disorders, including those with a history of suicidal ideation or behavior who are often excluded or underrepresented in biomedical research on mental health and physical conditions. This oversight poses special concerns in light of recent evidence that patients with depression and suicidal behavior or ideation may not respond as well to antidepressants. In this study, the authors examined the clinical trial history of 14 antidepressants approved between 1991 and 2013. They found that more stringent criteria for assessing suicide and excluding potential participants from the trials were very likely applied to drugs approved after 2000. Information on inclusion and exclusion criteria and the characteristics of enrolled participants can be difficult to find. Without easy access to this information, clinicians may be uncertain about the safety and efficacy of many antidepressants. The authors therefore conclude that clinicians who treat depressed patients with suicidal ideation or prior suicide attempt ideally should favor antidepressant approaches with documented efficacy for suicidal ideation and behavior. 
Given the limited time available in daily clinical practice, it is helpful for clinicians to use trajectories of individual symptoms in early stages of treatment to predict a more detailed subgroup of patients who may or may not ultimately respond to treatment. The aim of the present study was to identify individual symptoms of patients with Alzheimer's disease whose early improvements contributed to subsequent treatment response to antipsychotics for neuropsychiatric symptoms. Using the data set of the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness in Alzheimer's Disease Study, the authors analyzed the data from 421 Alzheimer's disease patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms treated with antipsychotics. Logistic regression analyses were performed to examine associations between subsequent treatment response at week 8 and clinical and demographic characteristics at week 2. Week 2 clinical characteristics included reductions in each total or individual symptom score on the neuropsychiatric inventory and the brief psychiatric scale. Several individual symptom score reductions at week 2 were significantly associated with subsequent treatment response at week 8. Early non-improvements in irritability and suspiciousness were shown to be particularly influential clinical markers to predict subsequent treatment non-response. Although further research to validate these preliminary findings is needed, focusing on early improvements in individual symptoms could help identify subsequent treatment responders to antipsychotics among Alzheimer's disease patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Tardive dyskinesia, or TD, is a potentially permanent hyperkinetic disorder associated with the use of dopamine receptor blocking agents. The involuntary movements patients experience can cause embarrassment, social withdrawal, and diminished quality of life. How do you evaluate patients for TD, and what should you rule out? How do treatment options differ? In this CME Academic Highlights section, supported by Teva, Doctors Citrome and Saclad team up to review the best clinical strategies. Learn from the experts about diagnosing and treating TD so that you can provide relief to your patients and their families. To read this academic highlights and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Suicide is one of the leading causes of death worldwide. Previous suicide attempts and depressive disorders are among key risk factors for completed suicide. Therefore, recognizing risk factors for suicidal ideation in patients with depressive disorders is important. Research has shown that hopelessness and severity of depression are central risk factors for suicidal ideation. Hopelessness as a concept in suicide research was originally derived from Beck's cognitive theory of suicide. In this theory, hopelessness is a negative belief about the future where problems are perceived as insolvable. However, the existing evidence only in part supports the centrality of hopelessness for emergence of suicidal ideation. In a five-year prospective study by Helsinki University, 400 patients with depressive disorders completed scales on suicidal ideation, hopelessness, depression, and anxiety at four time points, 
baseline, 6 months, 18 months, and 5 years. Results show that although hopelessness predicted severe suicidal ideation, its predictive value notably diminished after adjusting for depressive symptoms. In other words, in patients with depressive disorders, hopelessness predicts suicidal ideation, but largely because it co-varies with depressive symptoms. The study also showed that severity of depression predicts emergence of suicidal ideation even more accurately than hopelessness. Additionally, symptoms of anxiety can predict suicidal ideation in patients with depressive disorders. In view of these results, the authors recommend that treatment of both depression and anxiety is important to reduce risk for suicidal ideation. Many people who use alcohol also use tobacco. Given that varenicline reduces smoking rates in people with alcohol use, researchers have asked the question of whether it might be effective in reducing alcohol use as well. Biologically, both alcohol and tobacco work on the same brain region and receptors to increase their addictiveness. Although animal studies have shown promising results in reducing alcohol use with varenicline, results in human studies have been more mixed. To explore this issue, the authors of the present study aim to clarify whether varenicline might improve alcohol-related health and quality of life outcomes in people with alcohol use disorder. Researchers performed a meta-analysis combining randomized, placebo-controlled trials using varenicline to treat heavy alcohol use or alcohol use disorder. They looked for changes in the number of heavy drinking days, number of drinks per drinking day, percentage of days abstinent, or craving scale scores. Results showed that only craving scale scores decreased. There was no change in any of the other measures. However, there were not enough studies to examine whether results might be different for individuals with concomitant tobacco use disorder or to determine if varenicline is more effective in certain groups of people such as women versus men. The authors conclude that future studies might be able to better address these questions. Increasing evidence shows that being awake at night is a risk factor for suicidal behavior. Individuals with suicidal thinking are more likely to be awake at 4 a.m. and more suicides occur during the night than would be expected given the smaller number of people awake. With funding in part from the National Institutes of Health and the Veterans Administration, researchers used data on over 35,000 suicides to explore whether the risk of suicide was higher at night across months and methods. After accounting for the percentage of people awake at each hour, the hourly risk of suicide was always highest at night, regardless of age, sex, race, ethnicity, or geography. Moreover, the nocturnal risk remained constant across months and methods for all demographics. This finding supports nocturnal wakefulness as a proximal risk factor for suicide, meaning that being awake at night may support an individual's choice to commit suicide apart from long-standing factors such as mental illness or history of trauma. The search for proximal risk factors in suicide is critical, and these are high-impact targets for public health interventions. This study highlights sleep disturbance and nocturnal wakefulness as one of these targets. 
The authors recommend that future work should explore why being awake at night increases suicidality and what interventions may reduce this risk. Women with premenstrual dysphoric disorder, or PMDD, suffer functional impairment comparable to other depressive disorders, and yet PMDD and its impact remain under-recognized. Although further research is required to illuminate the pathophysiology of PMDD, a number of treatments targeting various proposed mechanisms are now in use. In a recent ASCP Corner article, the authors summarized the evidence for current PMDD treatment options based on randomized, placebo-controlled trials. This article is freely available online. Please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Are you familiar with the evidence supporting the two FDA-approved medications to treat tardive dyskinesia? Both drugs are effective, but clinicians need to understand the differences to select individualized treatment for patients. In this online CME brief report supported by Teva, Dr. Citrone provides a brief review of efficacy, adverse effects, dosing, need for food, and potential drug interactions. To read this brief report and take the CME post-test, please visit the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 1 of the March-April 2020 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.